All right, if you look again at uh, Proverbs chapter 2, that is the passage that we're going to be focused on this morning. Proverbs chapter 2. And once again, if you just have your handout there, you can look at that and see the text. There's also that other handout with the, um, the Hebrew text on it. I'd like for you to be able to look at that uh, during the middle, in the midst of the sermon. I'll, I'll address that. So um, have that prepared. The title of my sermon this morning is Wisdom Saves. Wisdom Saves. Now, that can seem a little bit uh, contrary to the passage that we just read in 1 Corinthians that says, um, where Paul is talking about wisdom of the world and so forth. So forth, so forth. But um, there's a big difference between the Hebrew idea of wisdom and the Greek idea of wisdom that was so prevalent. The wisdom of the age, as Paul puts it. <clears throat> Libraries are as old as civilization itself, and of the making of many books, there is no end. In an age when it is possible to have a vast store of digital information, print books are still being produced and are doing better now in terms of sales than when ebooks were first made available. I was talking with some friends uh, of mine about our preferences with regard to ebooks and print books, and we agreed that. Uh, while it's very useful to have uh, ebooks on a tablet device or on a computer where you can um, manipulate them and, 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 and copy and paste and do all these neat things, search them uh, and so forth, uh, we agreed that while that's nice, there's just something about possessing a physical book that makes us feel good. We like the smell of them and the shine of them and the heft of them. And many people are quite happy to collect books which they never even get around to reading. We call those people bibliophiles. Erasmus, the Catholic scholar who originally published the Greek New Testament, is famous for saying, When I get a little money, I buy books. And if any is left, I buy food and clothes. Books will often arrest our attention when we had no intention of reading them. A book sitting on a shelf is a waiting invitation to think about something new or something that we had not thought about uh, in a long time. Has it ever happened that you were tidying up your house and came across a book uh, that you hadn't read in a long time or maybe even at all, only to spend the next half hour totally engrossed in it? Now, that may not seem like a big life changing deal, but that could give you new thoughts and that could change the course of your day. And it could even lead you down an entirely different path in your life. How many little children are shaped by the fact that their parents keep a large collection of books? Books are impressive, aren't they? And children are impressionable. Little rivulets that may be directed this way or that by the mere fact that their parents possess a home library. Furthermore, it seems that shelves full of books have the power to suggest to us that we are not as great as we think we are. I find that just being inside of a great library is humbling. And perhaps working in a library can help a person be more humble over time. I think our own library director, Dr. Blaylock, is one of the most humble people you will ever meet. In any case, cherishing books and storing up knowledge in written form is the first step to internalizing what they have to say. 
because it makes us aware of authorities outside of ourselves. Just having them on the shelves means that they are a part of our physical world. In the area of morality and ethics, this opens us up to change. English philosopher Iris Murdoch argues that moral change comes from an increased sense of the reality of someone or something. Change of being, she says, is not brought about by straining and willpower, but a long, deep process of unselfing. Perhaps this process of unselfing begins in the very moment that we regard a book and it intensifies as we read it. This is the process by which the words of the book become more real to us. Our own ego recedes as we listen to the words of another. The book of Proverbs is a collection of written wisdom designed to shape impressionable children so that they can grow into the kingly way of living righteously before God. Solomon writes with repeated appeals to his son that he internalized the words of his mouth, for by them God will give the child discernment. When Solomon urges the reader to accept his words and to store up wisdom, he's referring to the words themselves. Solomon is not hoping that the reader will take this poem and thresh it like wheat and harvest a kernel of truth from it. We love that kernel of truth. On the contrary, Solomon expects the reader to accept the text as it is and let it go to work on him. As the words are read, remembered, and rehearsed, the child gets an increased sense of the reality of them. And he goes through that process of unselfing and his mission in life changes. Solomon's words to his son also happen to be the word of God to his children. And God doesn't want us to thresh his word either. If we really believe that the word of God is breathed out by the Holy Spirit, then we ought not to be afraid of the form that it takes. Whether that form is a lengthy genealogy or a detailed description of the design of the temple. The Holy Spirit does not waste his breath. Furthermore, people have poured out their entire lives uh, in, the, in the effort of preserving the word of God as we have it now for future generations so that they could have the holy scriptures as they were originally written. We mock their sacrifice when we try to distill the teaching of the scriptures into simple principles and slogans that can fit on a coffee cup. Take the Ten Commandments, for example. We could distill them down to two axioms. It's just about loving God and loving people. Now, we know that Jesus and Paul both said that the, the whole of the law can be summed up in love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love the neighbor, your neighbor as yourself. But that's not distilling it down and cutting everything off and saying, this is all you need to know, because they had that foundation. Jesus had the foundation of the Hebrew Scriptures, and Paul had the foundation of the Hebrew Scriptures. And so that's not enough to just cut everything down to that one, those two small principles. It is important to love God by not making idols. It is important to love people by not stealing from them. It is important for children to hear the original and to know the particulars of that historic event. They must hear that the commandments were written by the finger of God on tablets of stone and brought down from a mountain wreathed in a dark cloud, producing lightning and peals of thunder and the sound of a trumpet with a boundary set about the mountain and the threat of death for anyone who crossed it. All of those details are important. 
Proverbs 2 is one of 12 poems in the prologue of the book, which runs from chapter 1 to chapter 9. Ten of the poems are fatherly lessons, and two of the poems are interludes by Lady Wisdom, who cries out in the street, bidding young fools to turn aside and listen to her, that they might live. As one of the ten fatherly lessons, Proverbs 2 is unique because it explains the value of wisdom in a conditional statement, showing the outcome of listening to Father's words and internalizing them. The other lessons mostly contain imperatives, but this lesson is an if-then sentence. It says, if you listen to my words, this will happen, or if you get wisdom, God will save you. And so the main idea of this passage is that wisdom saves. Wisdom saves. And if you apply your hearts to what Proverbs 2 has to say, you can be saved too. Or do you want to walk in darkness? Do you want to walk with those who rejoice in evil? Do you want to join a community of corpses through the gaping door that leads to death? That's what Solomon is attempting to save us from here. Wide is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter it. And we've seen people that we know enter it. This text shows us that damnation and salvation begin with listening to certain words. Words and sayings from wayward people have the power to lead you down the gradually sloping path to death. But the word of the Lord leads upward to life. Now, this shouldn't uh, surprise us. After all, we know the power of words, how constant verbal abuse from others can make our lives a living hell or how praise and thanksgiving can lead us to fruitfulness and success. Furthermore, we know that God created the world through the word of his mouth. All tearing down and building up begins with speech. Now, this text supports that idea in a very deep way in its literary structure. And if you take out your handouts and look at them, we'll be focusing on those for a few minutes. You see, in Hebrew, this passage is actually a single sentence consisting of 22 lines. Uh, scholars agree that the 22 lines correspond to the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And throughout Scripture, there are uh, a number of instances where, like this one where the number 22 corresponds to the alphabet because the alphabet is the foundation of language and word is the beginning of everything. As the gospel of John says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And on a personal note, this is why I like to sing uh, the ABC song with my daughter. And uh, someone told me that you should always address the children when you're preaching at least once in the sermon. So Pearl, Pearl, let's sing the ABC song. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, U, V, W, X, Y, and Z. Now I've sung my ABCs. Someday won't you sing with me? That may seem silly, but the ABCs are the foundation of language. And I hope to share the word of God with my daughter and to establish that in her life. 
And here, this passage is saying that the ABCs are important. The alphabet, or in this case, the Aleph Bait, as it would be in Hebrew. And so this poem is, it's not an alphabetic acrostic as we see in Psalm 119. Each stanza beginning with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. In both Psalm 119 and Proverbs 2, the alphabet is key to the structure. And in both cases, the passage is about the power of God's word. However, in this passage, each of the first three stanzas begins with an Aleph statement. While each of the last three stanzas begins with a Lamed statement. Aleph is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and Lamed is the first letter of the second half of the Hebrew alphabet. So in each of those stanzas, it begins on the, in the first column, the first half, the first 11 verses. Uh, th- those first words in each stanza begin with an Aleph. And then in the second half, they begin with a Lamed. And so the first half of this poem, the Aleph half, is all about the young man's relationship with God through his father's words. The son's relationship with God begins at home through his parents, and he must listen to their words and internalize them to make faithfulness to God his own mission in life. The second half of the poem, verses 12 through 22, is the Lamed half. And it's all about the young man's relationship with other people. And if he listens to his father's words and maintains his relationship with God, he will be delivered from the crooked speech of those who would lead him away from the covenant with his God. The first half is all about the vertical relationship with God. And the second half is all about the horizontal relationship with people inside and outside the covenant community. So here we are. Back at the Ten Commandments. And it seems like everyone knows that the first tablet of the Decalogue is about the vertical relationship. And the second tablet is about the horizontal relationship. I don't think that's a coincidence at all. The Ten Commandments are the heart of the Mosaic Covenant. The heart that belongs to Israel as a nation. Now if we think of what is, what, whatever the heart of the United States is, we might be able to say that the U.S. Constitution is the codified heart of the nation. And so that's the way it was with the Ten Commandments for the children of Israel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. That's John's Gospel, and we hear that at the beginning of the Word, the Gospel about the New Covenant. Yet in the Mosaic Covenant, the Word became not flesh but stone. God gave the word from heaven on tablets of stone, and these tablets tabernacled, literally, with the nation of Israel in the wilderness. And the Israelites beheld God's glory in the tabernacle over the Ark of the Covenant where those tablets were kept. That's called the Shekinah glory or the glory cloud. The stone word of God inside the Ark, inside the tabernacle, was the center of their whole lives. All of them lived with the constant reality of this tabernacle, from the least of them to the greatest of them. And it shaped their lives. Nevertheless, this was an external reality. Only those Israelites who listened to the words of God and and internalized them had any hope of remaining faithful. They had to take up the practice that we see in Deuteronomy chapter 6, where Moses says, And these words that I command to you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. 
You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So again, we see the combination of internal and external when you're writing them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So Proverbs 2 begins with a condition. If you accept my words and treasure up my commandments. The first verse shows uh, that the process of internalization begins with passive and tender, almost childlike acceptance. But it ends with actively storing up and treasuring Father's words. And the next three verses show this process in greater detail. Opening the ear makes the next action of inclining the heart possible. And a ready heart leads to the action of calling out for insight and raising one's voice for understanding. The final verse in the stanza indicates that the son has fully internalized the words of his father. Now, wisdom is his life's mission, such that he seeks it like silver and searches for it as for hidden treasures. Now the father can say, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. His words have become my words. My son is the embodiment of my word. And if that isn't every father's dream for his children, it should be. My child is my word made flesh. I fear that we lack the confidence to say that because of sin. And, and that's, that's part of that problem there. But think about it. If we perfectly followed the word of God and kept his commandments, we could say to our child, become my word. Of course, we know that that's also the word of God. Now, this is the life of a Christian and his or her relationship with God in a nutshell. The word of God is on the outside, written on tablets of stone or on paper. But by opening one's ear to the word and internalizing it, a person takes up a new mission in life to actively seek the paths of God and the wisdom that he bestows. This is not a cause and effect relationship, however. The very next stanza declares that the Lord gives wisdom. Verses 6 through 8 describe the sovereign action of God in granting what the faithful son has been searching for. Wisdom is a gift, not an earned reward. Though it is the faithful son who will find it, it is a gift of sovereign grace. Now this seems a bit like a paradox. For how can it be unmerited favor if the son has to earn it by his allegiance to his father's words? It is because it is the work of God from first to last. According to verse 8, the Lord watches over the way of his saints. The word for saints here is chasid, which is derived from chesed. Chesed is Yahweh's loyal love or covenant love. This is the only place in the whole book of Proverbs where this word is used. This son already has the Lord's everlasting covenant love. If it is borne out in his life as he heeds his father's admonitions, his faithfulness proves God's gracious gift of wisdom. And again, this is what happens in the lives of Christians. Children of God who are children indeed are true Israelites and persevere in their faith and allegiance to God in Christ Jesus. They are found faithful and they possess good works, but only by God's grace. As Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, that great passage declaring that salvation is by grace through faith and not of works, lest anyone should boast. He says, 
We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand for us to walk in. As the scripture says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So the faithful child listens to his father's words and internalizes them. To this one, the Lord gives wisdom to guard his way in keeping covenant with God. This finishes out that Aleph half of the poem, and now we move to the Lamed half of the poem. And this half proclaims that the Lord is going to save his people from the words of unfaithful apostates. The next two stanzas are going to talk about men of perverse speech and the forbidden woman with her smooth words. This is a literary technique technique called a merism. He is using male and female archetypes to speak comprehensively about all of the people who would do this. All of the men and all of the women and all the wicked people who would lead his son astray. At the same time, however, he selects these male and female archetypes based upon those people who are most dangerous to an impressionable young man. In verses 12 through 15, he says that the Lord's wisdom saves from the perverted speech of the gang. We see this sort in chapter 1, verse 10, where the father warns about sinners who would entice his son to go lie in wait to ambush the weak and the unsuspecting. This is the gang of men with perverse speech. Uh, and he, the Hebrew in chapter 2 clearly marks these men out as those who are perverted, uh, not only in their general speech, but in their religious speech. They are guilty of vile theology and perverted liturgy. They have a twisted confession and have abandoned the words of their father and the ways of their covenant Lord. They are walking in darkness because they are not walking in the light of God's word. Rather than lifting up a shout of praise, they, were, they, they rejoice in evil. Now verses 16 through 19 say that God's wisdom will save the true son from the other great danger to young men, the forbidden woman. This is not merely a prostitute, but the sort of woman who forsakes her marriage vows to seduce other men into coming into her. This is the woman who rejects her husband as her covenant head and teacher for the chance to find pleasure in seducing other men. The fate of one who would follow her words is explained here with deep literary allusions and symbolism. In English, it goes a little bit like this. This woman, this forbidden woman, has become the doorway to death. Her body is the entryway into a community of corpses. Going to her is like leaving the good covenant society in order to join a church of rotting cadavers. None who go to her come back. Where do Christian children go when they leave the church? Where do people go? When they leave those words that their father and mother taught them. They go live with the gangs of people with strange speech and different confessions. They go dwell with the spiritually dead. Lured there by the smooth words of seductive liturgies pertaining to other world views. The reason that they listen is often because what they hear from them is genuinely compelling. We have gangs of intellectuals and entertainers and enthusiasts and activists and feminists coming along with big ideas, big words. These big ideas are more compelling to those who have never internalized the word of God. And oftentimes they have never internalized the word of God because their parents did not richly bestow it upon them. They gave them slogans 
platitudes, little memory verses and moralistic sayings and lists of rules, but they didn't give them the whole word of God. They didn't give them something that was bigger than themselves. These gangs will ensure that their speech indwells our children richly. Their language, their songs will lead them to something bigger than themselves. Big ideas like social justice, diversity, evolution, progressivism, democracy, socialism, and mindfulness. Sure, behind all these things is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. But they dress it up in nobility, equity, love, truth. And justice, that they might justify themselves in their own eyes. And before you know it, the word of God sounds backwards to them because they have internalized the perverse speech of those outside the covenant. You can't even talk to them about crooked, uh, uh, excuse me, you can't even talk to them about crooked men and wayward women because gender is a social construct. They don't want to listen to the words of their father because patriarchy is evil. Every perverted voice should be heard in the square except the voices of father and God. This is the so-called wisdom of the age that we live in. The last stanza of this poem, verses 20 through 22, proposes the final result for the child who heeds the father's words. He will walk in the paths of the righteous and will inhabit the land. This reference to the land refers to two things. It refers in a general sense to the good earth from which we derive our sustenance. But theologically, it refers to the land of the covenant promise. You see, all of the biblical covenants have a promised land. For Adam, it was the whole world. For Noah, it was the world after the flood. For Abraham and Moses, it was the promised land. For the new covenant... It is the new creation and the church. Those with wisdom will remain faithful to the covenant and will remain in the land. And those without wisdom will be cut off. Those who are banished from the land are doomed. This cutting off is the same thing as being driven out of Eden. It is the same as being cut off from Israel. It is the same thing as exile from the promised land. This is essentially what happened to the whole nation of Israel when it was dispersed amongst the nations. Yet this is also what happened to Christ in his crucifixion. As the prophet said in Isaiah 53, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away for he was cut off from the land of the living. Christ's death was a cutting off from the promised land and the good earth. But Christ should not have been cut off for no deceit was found in his mouth. If anyone ever internalized the word of God, it was Jesus Christ. He was the good son who listened to his father and rejected the devil's twisting of God's word and the scribes and Pharisees twisting of God's word. This is why the grave could not contain him. The community of corpses could not hold on Amen. to Christ. His life was incorruptible because of his faithfulness. This is good news for us because we had been cut off already in Adam. And guilty of our own sins besides. So when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30 that Jesus Christ became wisdom from God. And that Christians are in him. 
We know that we have that gift of wisdom that keeps us in the covenant. Christ's obedience is our obedience. And we have that gracious gift of wisdom that will keep us on the path of righteousness. So you see, wisdom saves. And Jesus Christ is wisdom from God. This is how God justifies the ungodly. If you have Jesus, you have wisdom and you are saved. This is also how God reaches out to the nations. As we receive the word and wisdom of God in Jesus Christ, we internalize him and we become epistles of God written on human hearts, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians. In Christ, we are the truthfulness of God. We are his faithfulness to the promises he made unto the patriarchs, that through them he would bring salvation to the nations. This is who we are in Christ. Now, I know that you all have accepted the word of God on at least a basic level, or you wouldn't be here this morning. You wouldn't be in seminary. But in order to fully internalize it, it has to become your mission in life to seek wisdom like silver and great treasure. Coming to seminary and writing research papers is hard. But so is going down into a mine to find silver and gemstones and gold. People who are less inclined toward the word of God will even criticize you for going too deep. Well, it is hard work and it is guaranteed to set you apart from the world. Kind of like going down into a mine. Nevertheless, God gives freely to all who come in the wisdom of his son and by his cross and resurrection. And that's good news. I preach this gospel to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.